0: Welcome to the podcast. This is Michael Easley and we're doing a special edition, uh, obviously, because of the Supreme Court decision, uh, which is known as the Dobbs case that came down a couple of days ago. And uh, before I introduce our guest, who's a friend and, and uh, expert on all things I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of things <laughs> I came across in the last couple of days that just struck me. Um, this one was written by three people, Theo Francis, Kate King, and Teresa Metala, I believe is how we pronounce her name. And it says, Churches call move cautiously on abortion and call for calm post-row. And they do an aggregate of some churches, and I'm just going to read it because this is what she, these folks write. For many in our country who have been fighting for this for so long, it felt like a huge win, said Pastor Andy Stanley a classmate of mine, at Northport Community Church, Alpharetta. But for others, he said, in our country, it felt like a gut punch. These are cultural moments where the church has an opportunity to shine even when we don't necessarily agree. Editorial comment. What, Andy? Mm -hmm. Secondly, at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Washington, D.C., priests didn't mention the course decision at the masses of celebration. This is where Justice Brett Kavanaugh attends. So I guess say nothing. That's the way to handle it. Prestonwood Baptist Church, our friend Jack Graham, comes out, quote, while we are celebrating and slapping some high fives, if you will, we're also on our knees thanking God. Okay. And then we have let's continue to fight for life, fight the good faith, knowing the enemy is not people, he said. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, Christopher Walsh. St. Cecilia Catholic Church in Philadelphia was interviewed at mass. It's not a time to spike the football. Okay. Similar message from other Roman Catholic churches including St. Patrick Cathedral in Midtown Manhattan. Father Enrique Salvo avoided direct references and said he called for forgiveness toward those who make mistakes. Mistakes. Oh, it's too depressing. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest. Okay. And then This is going on further in their argument. I don't think overturning is going to unify people. Janet Parshall, why does unifying people even have a space at the table when we're talking about abortion?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's an excellent question, but I think you have to start by stepping back a little bit. And I immediately, when you were talking, thought about the question on the table is abortion. And the question on the table is what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is not. And so I immediately hearken back to Jesus, referring to himself as truth, but reminding us that truth is like a sword. And truth has this uncanny way of dividing people into two camps. You either accept it or you reject it. You don't find common ground in truth. You're not a little bit dead, you're not a little bit pregnant, and there isn't a little bit of truth here. You either take truth as fact or you deny it completely. So I, I'm so tired in this post-truth world, no pun intended, of us trying to think that somehow that toleration supersedes truth. There's a lot of things, quite frankly, in the word, Michael, that I can't tolerate. And that's all well and good, and God doesn't care. He calls me into a loving relationship of obedience with him, whether I feel good about it or not. But the hallmark of this day and age in which we find ourselves, and it's a wonderful challenge for the believer, is whether or not our feelings trump everything else. And we are seeing I understand that in the culture writ large, I'm really struggling with it in the church. I don't understand where we have permission or license or the latitude to be able to discover truth only if it makes me feel comfortable. And I think that's really the crux of this particular issue right now. Unifying, the, the unifying factor is truth here.
0: And all the quotes I read are from churches, Janet. That's my that's my frustration. Uh, writ large is correct. The culture is a different discussion. These are men and women, allegedly, who are pastors and church leaders saying mm-hmm. these things.
1: Yep. That's the problem is that, you know, when all else fails, read the instructions. And I hate to sound very simplistic here, but sometimes I think we overcomplicate issues. And this one is pretty cut and dry. It's pretty straightforward. And quite honestly, it's pretty black and white. It's black ink on white paper. We don't have to guess God's position on this. It's just like the word Trinity. I don't read it in scripture. It doesn't mean that concept doesn't exist. And thank you, sir, for teaching us to think in context. And here's another example of it. So the contextual reading of God's word reminds us that God is the author of life. He numbers our days. He knows us so intimately. He knew us before we breathed our first. He knit us together fearfully and wonderfully in our mother's womb. Fast forward into the New Testament, And I have to tell you, of all the things that are in Scripture, do we ever stop and just with awe realize that there were things that God could have put in there that he chose not to and things that he could have taken out that he chose not to? So how about this little biographical fact? When Elizabeth is greeted by Mary, both of them pregnant, Elizabeth farther along in her pregnancy Mm -hmm. than Mary is, Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. And the Bible records why, why this amazing little fact that the babe leaps within her her womb. Now this is Cousin John leaping at mm-hmm. the appearance of Cousin Jesus. Yeah. So why is this recognition of the personhood of the preborn important? Is this some lofty, hyper-spiritualized point just to make eyes glaze over for the reader? Or is God trying to tell us something? Is he calling us to a higher view of himself first, and second of all, to recognize the profundity of creation, that even in the womb, John the Baptist, the last great prophet who would then bring in Jesus, leaps with excitement at the appearance of his savior. So the personhood of the preformed is is inarguable. The fact that God is the author of life. In fact, I'll make it easy for you. I'm in the bottom half of his graduating class, and I love what he does. He tells us in Deuteronomy, he's put before us this day life and death, and then loves us so much he gives us the answer to the test. Now choose life. There is absolutely no ambiguity. So in this post-truth world, from the pulpit in particular, when we hear the, this is a gut punch, this is going to be an area where we're have to find common ground. uh, No, I always threw a grace narrative that is never, ever, ever allowed to be removed from my dialogue with a sin-sick, hurting, upside-down world. But that doesn't mean that I am ever to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 63 million dead people later, we must not be ashamed of the truth we find in the word of God. God gave us a moment of mercy here. The battle is far from over, Michael, but I have to tell you, to have this clarity of thought For the Supreme Court to say there was never a constitutional right to kill another person is a seminal moment in American history.
0: Let me stop you. Let's do a little primer here for friends, because you and I have had this conversation. I contend most Americans, that includes people in churches, do not understand the fundamentals of, number one, Mm -hmm. three branches of government. Number two, federalism Mm -hmm. Mm vis-a-vis states' rights. So the... The administration functions. The executive administration, to, at the at the behest of Congress. Congress enacts laws. Congress makes laws. The administration gets to approve or disapprove of those through the power of the pen. When it comes to the justices, the Supreme Court, they weigh in judicially on interpretation of these laws that have been contested or put forward. Is that is that a fair? Yes, statement.
1: Uh, absolutely. In fact, let me just add one more thing to it for our brothers and sisters. The idea of the separation of the three branches is absolutely amazing when you think about it. It was built on the idea that our founders understood the basic sin nature of man. We can't miss this point. So the founders, and you can read this in the Federalist Papers, you can read this in their writings, that they understood, look, they've been under a king. They didn't want hegemony. They didn't want all the power located in one spot. So they created this quintessential sense of checks and balances with the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. From their perspective, by the way, the least important was the executive. And when you think about it, the president has very few enumerated powers. A lot of pomp and circumstance when the news picks up on it and we hold press conferences and he can take uh, primetime television time. But in terms of enumerated powers, not so much. The judicial branch they felt was unimportant, but they were cautious about an oligarchy. They didn't, again, want a small group of people with hyperpower. The most important branch for them was the legislative branch because that's the will of the people being spoken through the elected officials. But they hold each other at abeyance. So the Supreme Court doesn't make the law. It interprets the law. Anybody in the first week of law school is taught this. Scalia said it perfectly. He said, you don't like a decision we hand down, then give us a better law. We don't make the laws. We don't wear the robes of a legislator. We wear the robes of a judge. We don't color outside the lines. We adjudicate predicated on the laws as they had been passed by Congress. So that's the background. And when you think about it again, not to miss God's hand of of provision and guidance and sovereignty on the foundation of this country, that understanding our sin nature, we needed a system of checks and balances. So that's an important part of the precursor.
0: And and to inject uh, the way the Senate and the House are distributed is such a brilliant system because based on population, aggregate population, you should have more representation. Yet at the end of the day, it should be flattened so each state has two senators, regardless of the number of men and women in Congress. Now, we take that all together, and we're going to talk about federalism versus states' rights because one of the things people are so, I think, confused about, these over- stated comments about you know the end of the world now this goes back <laughs> right. to the states nothing has changed no. until a governor and that state legislator says a trigger law for example uh, goes into place Abortion's still available so why the apoplectic response and, and, I'll, and let's not even talk about the aocs and maxine waters from christians who you would think this is the image of god we're talking about he made them in the image of god and we're disposing of them indiscriminately for a host of reasons: inconvenience, quote unwanted pregnancy, close quote. We can talk about rape and incest, but those are such yeah. small, exceptional occasions you don't make rule and law on exceptional situations, right so So when we come to the Federalist yeah. they overstepped that's what that's what even even RBG said that correct. She said uh, Roe v Way was overstepping the bounds of states' rights in 1973.
1: First of all, let me go back to the brilliance again of the founding fathers. You know, we have the first 10 amendments. They are called the Bill of Rights. And let the record reflect, by the way, that the first part of the First Amendment happens to be religious liberty. You and I have talked about this, Michael. In any country on planet Earth where there is no religious liberty, isn't it paradoxical that there is likewise no freedom of the press, no freedom of assembly, and no freedom of speech? The founders knew that all aspects of that First Amendment intersected, and they wanted it to be so important, so preserved. It was the first part. But likewise, their brilliance is manifest by taking a look as we get to the bottom of the Bill of Rights, where they very clearly said, rights not herein enumerated belong to the state's. Again, they didn't want a central form of government. That's the closer you get to a monarchy. That's exactly the opposite. It was one person, one vote, the idea of no taxation without representation, all that stuff we learned in high school civics. And what they were saying is we want to spread the power to the people, not keep it in one single spot in Washington, D.C. So let me go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because when Roe was decided in 1973, It was legal scholars on both the right and the left that said this is on very shaky legal footing. And let's go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg because the extrapolation of this so-called constitutional right, we can unpack that more if you like, was found within a couple of amendments. The predominant one was the 14th Amendment, a so-called right to privacy. Now there is absolutely no enumerated right to abortion in the constitution of these United States, but there is absolute clarity that issues of life and death of huge importance belong as close to the people as possible, and they should be put in the lap of the states, where the people, vis-a-vis their state assemblies and their state legislatures, have an opportunity to, to vote on issues that are of paramount impo- importance. And taking the life of another person cannot be more than paramount. It is absolutely a seminal issue that the state should decide. So when even, even when Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, look, There's no constitutional right. Look, this is on very shaky legal ground. The caterwauling has me a little confused right now, Michael, (laughs) because everybody knew that the death knell was being sounded for Roe. It was just a matter of of time. time. They all knew it was coming, that it wasn't going to be able to pass scrutiny. You know, when Blackmun's court handed it down in 73, they went out of their way not to take a look at the personhood of the pre-born. They utterly ignored any medical aspects because that kind of messed with the game plan that you would extrapolate like a bad tooth out of the 14th Amendment, this so-called right to privacy. Well, what this court did with brilliance, because they are originalists, which means it says what it says and we interpret what it says. We can't make it up as we go along. In 73, they made it up out of thin air, ex nihilo. And now in 2022, they went back to the Constitution and said, there is no enumerated right for abortion. So I'll tell you what, because this is a biggie, we kick it back to the states. And the blessing is every state now gets to decide exactly what they want to do, which means the battle's not over, but now the playing field has been more clearly defined. There was never a constitutional right. And it grieved me when the president of the United States stood up and addressed the nation and said, I quote, it's not hyperbole to suggest a very solemn moment. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, once upon a time, we had something called the Dred Scott decision. That a person okay. wasn't a person. He was two thirds of a person, three quarters of a person. He wasn't a full person. And it took a civil war to overturn the Dred Scott decision. We had something called Plessy versus Ferguson, which basically said, We're going to subscribe to the idea separate but equal. You have yours, you have ours, but never the twain shall meet. And along comes the, and it was stare decisis. It was already decided law. And along comes a case called Brown versus the Board of Education, which flips. Plessy versus Ferguson. And now we've got integrated schools all across this country. So, you know, Michael, it all depends on whose ox is being gored. Everybody wants it to be super precedent as long as it's protecting their desired outcome. But instead, if you're going to put the mask on like Lady Justice and you let the scales tip back and forth with the evidence, the evidence comes out this way. There is no enumerated right for abortion. In fact, in his decision, Alito, writing from the majority, says not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion has long been a crime in every single state. Gives us a little history here. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. American law followed the common law until a wave to statutory restrictions in the 1800s expanded criminal liability for abortions. By the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and the remaining states would soon follow. Why is that important? Because the paradox here is you theoretically pulled the right to abortion out of the 14th Amendment, and at the time the 14th Amendment was passed, abortion was outlawed in the land. One of these things is not like the other. So you cannot (laughs) amalgamate the two. That's why I say it's pretty crystal clear.
0: So uh, I do have to read, uh, this is a great piece in Breitbart by James Pinkerton called The Supreme Court's Decision in the Dobbs Case is both smaller and larger than it might first appear. I re- I don't know Pinkerton, but this was a great piece. He's, he starts out about the hyperventilating from the Democrats and the left-wing media, the outrage mongers, he calls them. Dobbs merely returns the question of abortion to the states, leaving it for them to decide. So when Representative Maxine Waters says that Americans should defy the Dobbs ruling, Senator Mike Lee responded coolly, there's nothing to defy. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes back to the the point about federalism versus states' rights. You know, you can defy whatever you want. Um, and, And he goes on to cite Federalist 45 with Madison writing the state government will have the advantage of the federal government. And why is that, mm-hmm. he asked. For one thing, Madison argued, the states being closer to home are more likely to enjoy, quote, the probable support of the people. So if you live in Alabama, it's going to be a little more red than, say, California or Illinois, and you're representing your people, a.k.a. states' rights, then that law should reside within that state, Correct.
1: Hundred percent. And again, uh, the battle is not over. Depending on what state you live in now, you're either going to see the prohibition of abortion or you're going to see, in some cases, a furtherance of abortion. If you look at a proposed law in Maryland right now, it really opens the door to infanticide. If you look at California... They have proposed legislation that would really move toward infanticide, which means the baby not only can be killed while it's being born, but now they're using this bizarre perinatal statute, which means for up to six or seven weeks after the fact. So in other words, if a baby was born with Down syndrome, just ignore it. Remember the case in Indiana, the baby got rolled into a linen closet and they just let it die on its own. So in some cases, abortion is going to be absolutely furthered, more aggressive, more barbaric than ever before. And in other states, in fact, it is going to be pulled back. But guess what? welcome to democracy. This is what happens when the people speak. And if you don't like the outcome of the legislature, you vote in different representatives. If you like the outcome, you ensure that that person doesn't have any kind of a term limit. You give them another job, you let them go on and continue to represent you. But the bottom line is, these kinds of issues are of such paramount importance, and we cannot underscore this enough, that the people need to weigh in. And that only can be done Not through federalism, not through something in Washington, D.C., but when the people speak in each of the 50 states that we have. And, Michael, I have to tell you, some of the bizarre—you were quoting some excellent people. There was an op-ed piece that ran in The New York Times over the weekend calling for Congress to discipline the Supreme Court. Now, I laughed out loud when I read that because I thought— I'm sorry, where in the Constitution does it say that the Congress has the right to discipline the Supreme Court? And his column was called, How to Discipline a Rogue Supreme Court. Was it rogue when it passed (laughs) Brown versus the Board of Education? Or is it just rogue now when they decide that there's no constitutional right to roll? And he said, the Supreme Court doesn't exist above the constitutional system.
0: Bizarre. Correct me if I'm wrong. And and again, you're more of... You're more up on data than I can ever be. But, I, Janet, I look at the at the protest, whether it's, you know, what we're do, defacing assist pregnancy centers or whatever, over against when Roe v. Wade was passed, I didn't see the evangelical pro-life group burn down cities. <laughs> I, I haven't seen in the past almost 50 years anything other than peaceful marches. On uh, Washington D.C. Granted you have some sick people that killed abortion providers. Granted you had some you know fire bombings here and there not minimizing that for one second. H- help me out here Janet that I must say evangelicals and pro-lifers are perfect but the response compared to the way the pro-abortion world has responded to this is just you, you, it, is evil an overstatement?
1: It, there's no comparison No, not at all. In fact, the word that keeps coming to my mind is lawlessness. And that's what we see. Remember, a couple of years ago, we decided to defund the police. Then we decided when we not going to arrest people for petty crime. So we have really seen what the word tells us is going to happen in these latter days, where we're going to see a rise of lawlessness. And that's exactly what's happening. So now you had, as of a week ago Friday, 51 events at pro-life centers, pro-family centers. And then there were a myriad of ones that took place over the weekend. Lynchburg, Virginia, Asheville, uh, North Carolina. There was one in Portland, Oregon over the weekend. And I mean, this is firebombing paint, vandalism, breaking glass, threats, by the way, that the pregnancy volunteer workers are getting on their phone lines. They're having to hire security people. Listen, these people live on a hand-to-mouth, love-gift basis. And when you have to hire a security guard now, that depletes your funds for doing the work that you're called to do. So here's what really what bothers me is that a week ago Friday, it took several members of Congress, and I'm sorry to report they only belong to one party. This should not be a Republican or Democratic issue. This should be a right and wrong issue. But it took several members of one party to send a letter to the FBI saying, hey, wait a minute, you talk about domestic terrorists. What in the world do you categorize this behavior at? And I say this with the greatest of respect for the office of president of the United States. But during his inauguration speech, the president used the phrase domestic terrorists. So this is been a hot button issue of his. But the hypocrisy of the issue is augured out when you decide that you're going to go after moms and dads at a school board meeting, but apparently you're not going to go after people who are literally firebombing pro-life clinics across the country. So the FBI, a week ago Friday, sent out a note that said, yes, we're going to be investigating. Well, I'm waiting for the first arrest. That seems to be a slow train coming. So there is no moral equivalency here to the comparison of the action. You rightly pointed out that every time we had some living on the fringes who decided that they were going to try to go after the life of an abortion provider or they were going to chain themselves to an abortion clinic. It was publicly decried by every mature church leader that I know. Nobody let that slip. We called it out for what it was and said, you cannot say that you're fighting for life and then practice that kind of behavior. But the hypocrisy here is palpable. So the government needs to weigh in. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters who voluntarily give of their time, their service, their finances, and are the front Line warriors in this battle, but where is the federal government to stay enough already? Now, the President, and I will give him credit here when he did, in that same speech, address the nation and he called for calmness and he called for caution and that's great, but words are meaningless if they aren't matched with action. I'm waiting to see now what sort of follow ups we're going to do, but it's a great tutorial for us. let me let's rise above this. what's the transcendence for the follower of Christ here? It's the Rules of Deportment. We have in this great book of love letters that says you don't overcome evil with evil, that a soft answer turns away wrath, and that what we do is we put heaping coals of fire, not literal, figurative. We love those who disagree with us. Our entire movement in the pro-life community should be propelled by love, not by rights, not by principles, not by whether something's found in the Constitution or not, but by the fact that somebody's hurting, somebody's in crisis, somebody doesn't know what to do. Years ago, I had one of these precious saints at a pregnancy help center say to me that a woman in crisis is like an animal whose foot gets caught in a trap. They'll gnaw their foot off to try to get out of the trap if they have to to free themselves from this situation. That's a graphic but perfectly succinct picture of someone who goes, help, what do I do now? And so we need to be there as the front line, the first responders in this very, very important issue. So the church cannot, must not retreat. And by the way, for the record, Michael, pregnancy help centers outnumber abortion mills in this country four to one. Abortion clinics have been closing all across the country because there's a sea change of the culture at large, who are saying, ooh, wait a minute, you mean abortion on demand means abortion from the moment of conception to the moment of birth? I didn't know that. I'm not supportive of that. When Planned Parenthood gets on the national television, and they've certainly got a platform right now, and they say, America support abortion. No, they don't. When you unpack that, you begin to realize that the minute you explain to somebody what an abortion is or how far abortions can go in this country, you immediately get a boomerang polling number that says the overwhelming majority of America can say, no, we want restrictions. And most people say, 15 weeks, when you start hearing a heartbeat, when, I mean, dead things don't have heartbeats. Doesn't it follow suit that then living things have a heartbeat? And if there's something living there, is it afforded protection? The answer overwhelmingly should be yes.
0: I remember it was in the late 70s, a group of college kids from Stephen F. Austin drove up to uh, Dallas at it was hosted at Perkins Seminary, hosting C. Everett Koop and Francis Schaefer. They were releasing the 10-part series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. I remember first time I had ever heard or seen Koop bedazzled dazzled by his speaking. And he said, at the moment of conception, sperm and egg, that's when life begins. And he articulated that prior to Roe v. Wade, that was true in every zoological and biological textbook. But after Roe v. Wade, little by little, they began changing that. He was asked about saving the life of the mother or the child. And he said that's rarely ever an issue. When a a woman in distress comes into the hospital, the emergency room and the operating room's goal is to save both lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's never a case where you have to say, we have to kill this life to save that life. One may die, but that's not the objective. And I remember as a young college student going, this makes logical, perfect sense. Mm-hmm. What's not to like, yeah. right? So something happened along the way, and I wanted to get to this at some point in our conversation. The anger and the vitriol on both sides can be palpable, but when I see the anger from the pro abortion camp, one of my suspicions, and you help me out here, is when they're so angry and so hateful, and the language, and if they're going to firebomb and put feces on a, on a, uh, crisis pregnancy assist center for goodness sake Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that anger the way to keep at bay the raw emotion if i ever thought for a moment i was killing an infant or a child Hmm. i couldn't deal with it
1: yeah yeah, or am exactly. I missing something here? No, you're spot on as usual. But to quote you, you're thinking too logically. And I think <laughs> the problem here is we failed to recognize exactly what Sievert Koop and Francis Schaefer said. And by the way, what a fabulous series. And I'm so glad that because of the advent of all the tech we've got, friends, if you haven't seen that series, please watch it. Francis Schaeffer was prophetic in telling us exactly what was going to be coming and what the outcome of these kinds of decisions would be, and he nailed it completely. But let me go to your anger point. Um, I think what happens is when you're losing the argument, the anger mounts up. I understand that there's a fomenting of feeling out there, but I'm interested particularly in the age response. Maybe it's the the mother in me, the grandmother in me, but I'm looking at people and I'm thinking, wait a minute critical thinking is not an option. It's a mandate. I want to know why you feel the way you do. And do you think that somehow sending menstrual blood to Supreme Court justices, which is now happening in Washington, that somehow you're going to change the outcome? First of all, by now you should understand that Supreme Court justices are not bullied. uh, Clarence Thomas made that statement declaratively, as evidenced by the decision. They weren't bullied. The same five that were there in the leaked memo on February 10th were the same five that were in the final decision. The only one we didn't know about was Roberts. Mm. He did what was a concurring opinion, which means I agree with your outcome, but I would have argued it a different way. So it became a 6-3 decision. But let me go to the, uh, the anger part of this. I, I read over the weekend an article that said the overturning of Roe was really going to mess with the hookup culture. And I stopped and went, this is a bad thing? Now, I don't know what the hookup culture is. I hooked up with one guy, and I've been hooked to him for 51 years. So I don't know what hooked up really means, but I think it sort of means you hook up that for the barb reason of a stuck. sexual yeah, it got dalliance. barb got stuck in your
0: throat, yeah. That, that's,
1: that's exactly right. It was a sexual dalliance. So in other words, you're understanding that promiscuous sexuality, and I'm going to sound like my mom here, but you know what? Sometimes that old-fashioned talk's not that bad. So if you engage in sexual promiscuity, knowing that that behavior has the potential of producing another human being, hmm, you got two options here. You don't engage in that behavior, therefore there is no concern for the potential of the conception of a new life, or you engage and then you hope there's no consequences. Let me linger in the latter for a moment. I think in a post-truth world, we are living with an entire demographic that screams choice but fails to recognize consequences. For every action, there is a consequence. So if you decide to engage sexually and put aside the the rape and incest and the ectopic pregnancies for a minute, and I'm going to come back to that because that's been the bludgeoning tool since the decision came down, and I will address that. Right. But if you go to the overwhelming reason why people have abortions, all of the data out there tells us it is for, quote, social reasons. Now, that's chilling. In other words, ah, you're messing with my school or I don't want another child or this is an inconvenient time or, you know, I think I'd rather wait. I don't want a child right now. And all of those might be rationalized in the mind of the mom. But the statistics are this is not because of rape and incest. It becomes, therefore, a form of birth control. An action where a potential for conception takes place results in the birth control of an abortion. And when most Americans hear that, they begin to wither and pull back in their support of abortion. In fact, it's not an all uncommon, and our friends at the Pregnancy Help Center will tell you that women will come in two, three, four abortions because it becomes a kind of de facto birth control. Right. Now, let me just take one second and talk about the rape, incest, and ectopic pregnancies. Sure. Rape and incest abortions make up less than 1% of the totality of abortions, less than 1%. So those are, again, the hard cases that you referred to early on. Um, But if you talk about the ectopic pregnancy, for friends who don't understand, that's the fertilized egg works its way uh, right into the fallopian tube, and instead of planting in the wall of the uterus, which is how God designed it, it errantly plants into the fallopian tube. As it begins to grow, just figure this picture in your mind. A fallopian tube is only so big. It is not designed to expand like the uterus is. So it will get to a point where Mm -hmm. its size will supersede the fallopian tube, the tube will explode, the mother can hemorrhage to death, and it automatically takes the life of the baby. There is guaranteed absolute death for the child. You cannot pick up the baby from the fallopian tube and replant it in the uterus. Maybe that's going to be medicine in the future, but it's not medicine for right now. So for people who say, you're going to allow a woman to die because of an ectopic pregnancy, I know of no physician on planet Earth who's ever said, hmm, give me a minute. They know that the baby is going to die and the rupturing is going to take the life of the mother. So, Again, these these rare exceptions do not define the overwhelming majority that over 95 percent of abortions are done for social reasons and not done for rape, incest or a medical emergency. And I think just put those facts out there and it begins to put the death of 63 million people into perspective.
0: All right. I want to refer to this. If If you have not seen the New York magazines, the front, the whole cover, this magazine can help you get an abortion and I had to print it out and read the whole thing. It's not that long, but this is what's striking. Uh, the Supreme Court, as expected, overturned Roe v. Wade in the 6-3 to three decision, etc. So what they do is on this site, they have find abortion services. Put your zip code in. Last time since your period. Put the weeks in. Are you under 18? Yes or no? So I played with this. And I put information in and clicked it. And I started in my home state of Tennessee. And I I put some information and I said, yes, I was under 18. Janet, I can't believe what it published. Tennessee has some restrictions on abortion. There are multiple clinics currently operating in the state. Abortion is banned after fetal viability. It goes on and on and on. Mandatory for, however, they list all the places I can drive out of state with a map. (laughs) To these different sites, up to twenty six weeks up to twenty seven weeks up to thirty two weeks, now you made a comment earlier about churches four to one uh when it comes to uh pregnancy assist type ministries versus planned parenthood, so one of the things that angers me is, and I've seen a number of media hits today where people are saying the church needs to step up, the church needs to do more. I'm going. Were it not for the church, we wouldn't be where we are today moving forward on pro life, number one. Number two, uh, I'm an adoptive Mm -hmm. parent, three of my four kids, and some of those were through Christian efforts where people said, no, I'm not going to kill this child. Uh, we're going to carry this child to term. And there are people who will readily help you with placement. If you need to go live somewhere for a few months, six months, whatever, we'll take care of you at no charge and help you get this little boy or little girl into a home that will love them. When we lived in Texas, Janet, at the time uh, when we adopted our, our, our second daughter, I believe there were 40 couples in the state of Texas per one child that was being placed for adoption and that was in the private uh, sector not in the you know the foster care system or older children i think it's something like 10 times that factor today mm-hmm. because of abortion
1: yeah uh, let's just start with the fact that pregnancy is not a disease it's 9 months out of a woman's life and when she's done being pregnant she has the option of either raising that child so when child, that woman
0: said it was a parasite she was wrong <laughs>
1: Yes. So that baby's waving, sucking his thumb, having the hiccups, doing rollovers. It's why Planned Parenthood does not want to have ultrasound machines in their clinics, because 90 percent of women, once they see a picture of their preborn child, change their mind, even if they're abortion minded. And they go, it's not a blob of tissues. It's not a parasite. It's not a lump of cells. And they keep their baby. Can't do it. But going back to your point about adoption, you know, here's something I think we can do. I think we can work to try to lower some of the restrictions for adoption in this country. They become cumbersome. They become too expensive. There are people in waiting lines around the block, five times waiting to adopt children. We make it difficult to be able to do it. We have an absolutely overflowing foster care system. If we really care about children, then tear down some of these walls. Forget the wall of separation of church and state. Tear these walls down and see if we can make adoption easier in this country to get children into loving homes. And for the record, by the way, again, the church led in this area. The church led in the foundling movement in this country in the 1800s. The church has been out in front of this issue all along. We're not reactive. We've been proactive from the get-go on this particular problem. Let the record reflect, Your Honor, that if you go to first century Rome, when they were leaving babies on the roadside, it was the Christians who were picking up the abandoned children and taking care of them. So the church doesn't need to be lectured by the church on, we need to lead on this. The church has been leading by this. My response would be, we need more people to follow us because we've been doing this since Roe came down since 1973. God bless those churches who have been unashamed of saying, we partner with our local pregnancy center. We'll sponsor our local pregnancy center. We'll make sure we've got a booth in the hallway of the ministries that we support. We'll have a pro-life Sunday. Anything you can do to take this out of the mislabeling that this is a political issue and put it front and center of the pews in the church. Look, I've said this a thousand times coming from Washington, D.C., this issue wears the garments of a judge. This wish, this issue can look like it's a legislator, but at its roots, Michael, this is a spiritual issue. The church succeeds. The church abounds in this area when we recognize the spiritual aspect of this battle.
0: Janet Parshall, as always, um, you help me think critically and clearly about these issues. I, I just marvel at how far we have come. I just interviewed a young woman the other day, Autumn Higashi, Autumn Lindsay Higashi, who's this... Uh, firebrand of a red hair girl who responded to a piece on uh, teen vogue a while back on 10 gifts you can give your friend who just had an abortion Hmm. and she went on youtube or facebook and did this long response that is now in the millions of views on youtube she's 21 years old and i interviewed her the other day and i i commended her and i know you've seen this too The younger generation has continued fighting a fight that you and I kind of lost, if you will, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so blown away by these young students for life, you know, all these young men and women who are out there saying no these are these are human beings and we need to do something so kudos to these young kids who are fighting for life it gives me a little hope mm-hmm. <laughs> that there's still a chance for some of these legislators to learn that this is not a convenience or a constitutional issue this is a person made in the image of god exactly. janet partial always a blessing to have you thank you thank you thank you for your time love and appreciate you friend
1: all right, right back at you. Thank you for thinking critically and biblically about these issues, Michael. You're helping all of us.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our
1: listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hole. produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.